So I got up there yelling out for her. There was no response. It was pitch darkness, but there was this very slight uh, glow coming from her headlamp. But it wasn't, I mean, for all of us that have seen headlamps, right? Like there's a big difference between just a bright headlamp that is undisturbed. This was just more of a very dim glow and it was reflecting off of the walls of the crevasse and just kind of this... I don't know, crazy blue, purplish tone. And I kept on yelling. So, I mean, I guess it was worse because I could, you know, I could see some glow from the headlamp, but there was no response coming from her. But I couldn't see her. Like, I couldn't really make out her body or anything, just this little glow of the headlamp. So as I kept on yelling for her and not getting a response, you know, I basically went into... I don't know, state of shock, just basically figuring she was dead. This is the Sharp End Podcast. I'm Ashley, the creator and hostess of the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. Since 1862, Mammut has been making gear that allows you to confidently go. In these challenging times, make sure that you are recreating responsibly and adventure locally. This month, Mammut is giving away their award-winning Ducan Spine Pack and their Ducan High Gore-Tex boots. Follow along on Instagram to win this gear for your next adventure. Make sure to follow the Sharpen Podcast and Mammut NA for a chance to win. Thank you to our friends at Desert Mountain Medicine and Sunto for supporting the show. So the man that you heard at the beginning of the show was Moriel Hansen, the son of a woman who shares her story with us today. I cannot even imagine what Moriel felt when he stood there and looked down inside the crevasse, thinking that his own mother was dead. This incident happened in August of 2007, 13 years ago. The story has been rattling around on this woman's head for that long. She often feels like it happened yesterday. Rita is now ready to talk about it, and I'd like to welcome her to the show. Today, she's going to tell us about her climb on Mount Rainier when she was buried alive. My name's Rita Hansen, and I'm actually based here in in central Oregon. I work in Bend, but I live in Redmond, which is about 10 miles so from Smith Rock. And I've been here for about eight years now. So just a little piece of heaven on earth. I have a son that is now 40 years old, believe it or not. And uh, I also have a stepdaughter who's like 42. So, so the, the, it's just the two of them. One's in Seattle, and my son is actually here in Bend, and he's like one of my favorite climbing partners in the whole world. And did he teach your son how to climb? I sure did. He uh, started climbing in his um, early teenage years. You know, I didn't have him for the first few years. Uh, he was with his dad, but then when he moved in with us, he he uh, really expressed a desire to learn how to climb, and so I think he his first trip up Mount Hood, which was my backyard mountain, uh, he was probably 14 years old. So we actually nowadays will get up early in the morning and head out to Smith Rock and and do a run and boulder and climb and and uh, before work. So <laughs> it's kind of our routine in the summertime. Sarita, so would you say that Smith Rock is your climbing crag? 
It is. I've been rock climbing there since the early 80s. Very cool, Rita. Um, Okay, so tell me what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to talk about something that happened to me back in August of uh, 2007. Uh, I know it's been 13 years, but I think, um, as I explained to you in an email, it's like it's, it's been rattling around in my head all these years. And at times it feels like it happened yesterday, especially when I hear about people who've been caught in an avalanche or a tree well or something because of what eventually happened to me. I still feel those feelings. So this happened back in August of 2007, 13 years ago, and it was up on Mount Rainier, which uh, turned out to be at that time a mountain that I had not yet summited, unbelievably, uh, because, you know, for for whatever reason, I'd made multiple attempts, mostly weather-related. It just had never resulted in a successful summit. And um, I'd climbed hood, you know, by that time, it was probably over 30 times that I'd climbed hood on all the way, you know, all, all the routes on my hood. But Rainier always eluded me. And so it was just... And how many times have you tried climbing it? Probably like, at that time, it was probably like half a dozen times. And uh, I'd climbed Adams, climbed Helen's numerous times. You know, it's just Rainier was never, <laughs> never, it just was my nemesis it seemed like well yeah and plus the weather in the pacific northwest is really never that cooperative this is true this is true you know i i and i'm kind of i don't like to say i'm a fair weather climber but i respect mother nature and so i really i i you know i never know if i'm going to make it to the tops of these mountains again and and i just want to be able to go in with good weather i mean we're from we're from oregon where you know People intentionally have gone to climb Mount Hood in bad weather and good things, I mean, bad things have happened. So I tend to really respect Mother Nature and the weather. Yeah. And what was the weather doing in August? Well, it's, it actually, it's been, it was a great summer. Um, and, but it's kind of late. So for Rainier, August is late. And so all the crevasses are really, really opened up at that point. And this was a, but this was a beautiful weekend that we were heading into. And my brother uh, was organizing climbs up Rainier with his Boy Scout troops, which is something he'd been doing for years. So he had a climb that he did in July and he asked if I wanted to join him. And I said, no, because actually my son and I were climbing Mount Baker. So then in August, he was planning to do this climb up Emmons Emmons Headwall. And in July, he had done Disappointment Cleaver, which is the standard route, you know, through Camp Muir. And Emmons, Emmons Headwall is up to Camp Sherman and then up on, more on the east side of the mountain. So he asked if I wanted to join him on the Emmons head Emmons headwall climb in August, and uh, he said, "Yeah, and bring Moriel, your son." And I said, "Great, that sounds like a great idea. Um, let's 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 plan it out that way." This was like the second weekend in August, and we had it on the calendar. So that was the plan. We were going to head in on Thursday. Uh, hike a head out in the afternoon, hike a few miles, have a have a sleep, 
and then the next day get up to high camp. So which is high camp is just a little bit above Camp Sherman. So you have just, you know, you've made a few extra, you know, you gain some some elevation and you're not right there at Camp Sherman where it can be a little bit crowded, especially in the summer on Mount Rainier. So the plan was Thursday hike, Friday get up the next day, get up to camp, get up to high camp. And then uh, be there like early afternoon on Friday and then get a few hours of rest and start the climb. You know, my, my brother likes to do, especially with Boy Scouts, he likes to start early, like around midnight. You know, you gain the summit in eight to 10 hours, maybe 12, depending on how how fit and, and how well uh, the travel is going. And then if you're lucky, you can actually get down and hike all the way out. I mean, some people will summit and then hike all the way out. If you, especially if you start really early and you're in good shape. So that right. was the yeah, plan. Yeah, that's what I did last year. I actually flew from Alaska on a Thursday afternoon uh, to Washington. Uh, did ground school Friday, uh, went up to high camp Saturday, summited, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning, came all the way down Sunday, and then actually went all the way to the airport Sunday and flew back to Alaska Sunday night, um, all so I could be back to work on Monday. Oh my God, Ashley. <laughs> That's like, okay. So, so that was the, the, yeah. So there you go. And, and actually the, well, as you'll hear the next the next year we did the same thing. We went up to discipline. We did, you know, I was like, okay, I, I really got to climb right here. And we did disappointment cleaver and you know, we did, we stayed at Camp Muir. Uh, we actually stayed in the hut at Camp Muir and then it was really nice and we summited, but I actually decided to, um, spend another night at Camp Muir and hike out the next day. I just really needed to, I really, really, really wanted to embrace the fact that I finally had summited Rainier and wanted to spend as much time on that mountain. But the plan was we were going to get up early, summit, hike down, pack up and head all the way out. And, but we had Sunday as a backup, you know, so it was always, you know, that was what my brother liked to do. He just said, you know, it's always good to have Sunday as a backup. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the plan. And so we all met um, on Thursday afternoon in the parking lot uh, at the trailhead to hike up to Camp Sherman and uh, uh, left, you know, on on time and hiked in till early, you know, dusk. And uh, it was below Intermountain Glacier. So, you know, this is sort of like the very first glacier you hit, but we, we camped below that. And then the next day, Uh, And it was my brother, it was a 16-year-old Boy Scout, his 42-year-old dad, my son, and myself. So we were a party of five. Two rope teams? Two rope teams, yep. My brother was going to be on a rope with a 16-year-old and his dad, and my son and I were going to follow on our own rope, and we were going to just, we were just going to, you know, shadow them. So we were, it was totally going to be totally chill beautiful stellar weather and I had a great day on Thursday great hike in on Friday Uh, got up to Camp Sherman it was really striking to me uh, and I sent you some pictures about how how wide opened the crevasses were I was like shocked I'd been on Rainier before and I just it just was mind-blowing to be there in the middle of August and see how big 
the crevasses were. Mm, wow. Yeah. Describe them to me. Could they, uh, could they like swallow a house? Oh, oh, easily. Just wide open gapes and just it really, uh, I, I was, I was awestruck by how opened up the crevasses were and, uh, looking back on it now and talking about it and being back up there. But um, I just remember thinking, wow, this is, you know, everybody was commenting and, oh, well, it's pretty late in the season and this is what it's like. And it was like, oh my gosh, you just wouldn't want to <laughs> fall in one. So well, I guess just, the perk is that you can actually see all the crevasses though, right? Totally, totally. There was no issue around, oh, we're going to step on it into a crevasse that's unmarked. Okay, well, just to paint a quick picture for the listeners, Rita is standing on a massive glaciated mountain in Washington State at 9,500 feet at elevation and uh, surrounded by massive crevasses that can swallow houses whole. Just to paint that picture there for you. Yeah, and we actually went a little bit above Camp Sherman to set up high camp just to get away from the crowds. So like we went to the next bench and we just started to, um, you know, set up tents and get water ready and start getting prepared because it was early afternoon and we knew we were going to get up around 1130 and start climbing at midnight. And my brother approaches me and says that he's not feeling good, that his knee is bothering him and he just doesn't feel like he's in a he's in a place where he can lead this you know take up this boy scout and his dad and he asked me if I would be willing to do that so this is lesson learned number 1 is to really think hard about deviating from your original plan without fully assessing the risks I didn't know the 16-year-old or the 40. I mean, this was the first time I'd ever been around these two people. I mean, nice people, and but I just had no idea what their climbing experience was um, and, and, and what they knew and what they didn't know. But my brother asked if I would be so kind to, you know, take them up to Mount Rainier, um, take them up this climb, a climb I'd never done, a route I'd never been on, and, uh, and that, you know, he would recommend that I was leading, which that would have been, yes, of course I would lead and my son would bring up the rear. And so I said, yes. And, um, and my brother was kind of giving me all the beta on the route, the climb, what to expect, you know, well, what so to look when for. he asked you this question, uh, were you pretty, uh, affirmed in your answer? Like, yes, I will absolutely do this for you. No questions asked, no problem. Or were you a little bit more hesitant and more, uh, had to process your idea? Yeah, your, your, you, can, you know, answer. Ashley, I wished that I was probably, I wish I'd like to say that I was more deliberate about it, that I was hesitant about it, that I was, that I was really thinking through the consequences of climbing with somebody that I didn't know, or that I didn't know what they knew and didn't know. Um, I, but I honestly think that being the kind of person I am, I just said, sure, that I had all this confidence and like, yeah, sure, no problem. 
Right. So was it more of like a, an accommodating thing, but, and you weren't really thinking about the process of what was going to happen next. Okay. Well, I'm going to have, you know, we're going to go from two rope teams to one rope team of four on one rope team. And I'm going to be managing this rope team. So yeah. What was, what was that like? It was very much me being accommodating like I usually am. I am sort of that person that will say yes first before (laughs) say, Oh sure. Yeah, I'll do that. Um, I'm, it's my nature. It's my, it's my, it's, it's who I am as a person. Um, and so, but this was absolutely a lesson learned about taking on the responsibility for two beginner climbers with whom I had never climbed before. And I didn't know what they knew. Now we did practice some self. I wanted, I wanted to see, okay, so, you know, do you know how to do self-rescue? Do you know how to, um, uh, just do basic, you know, holding the ice axes. And because we really hadn't even done any of that up until this point, you know, we hadn't roped up, we hadn't done any of these things. So we spent the afternoon doing quite a bit of rope management and rope handling and making sure that, okay, you know how to do this, you know how to do that. Um, um, but there was no crevasse rescue. There was no, we didn't practice any crevasse rescue. In the event that somebody falls into a crevasse, let's play that out. You know, we did carry pickets. Um, we did divvy up the gear. We did uh, measure out, okay, which rope are we going to take? So, and we had a, I want to say we had a 70 meter. It was a, you know, it was a thin alpine rope. But it was long enough to put uh, 65 feet between each climber. So we measured that all out and we had that all figured out. So um, that was definitely the, you know, okay, we're going to take one rope and, and here's how we're going to do this. And here's, it's going to be Rita, then it's going to be the 16 year old, and then it's going to be the 42 year old dad. And then it's going to be my son, Moriel at the back. And we all had ascenders or jumars you know and um and there was a little bit of okay do you, are you do you know how these work um but it wasn't very extensive because it was already by this time late afternoon and you know there was that whole notion it's just it was very rushed in the sense of okay well this is now the new plan and um and so i um I, you know, I look back on this now and just, and, and realize that that was the first thing that I was a major lesson learned for me as coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you, but you went for it. I did. I did. I did. And we went to bed and I mean, we tried to rest. We all got up at, I mean, we got up really early. Oh, that was the other thing, you know, it's like, okay, we're getting up really early. We are going to, we are going to give ourselves the best shot. So I think we probably got up at 11. Um, not that anybody slept, but, you know, we got up at 11 and, and my brother got up and he was helping us all get sorted out and everything. And, uh, and we were definitely the first party on the mountain. We were the first party out of the gates looking at, and there was a pretty big crowd that was going to be climbing that day because it was optimal. It was perfect weather. No wind. Okay. And just to paint the picture here, 
it's pitch black at night. It, it's dark. You know, they can't see anything without their headlamp. So just keep that in mind when uh, when Rita tells the rest of her story here. So so we left and and you could see um, and you see in the pictures, you know, the, you, the boot track was so clear and so obvious. This is like the boot track, which I have to say now is you know, don't assume the boot track is the safest place to be, but that's where I was, you know. And so when you're leaving high camp out of Camp Sherman and you have to gain the head wall and, and to gain the head wall, you kind of start, uh, you climb up, but you're just kind of angling to the, as you're facing the mountain, you're angling to the left to gain the head wall and you are traversing a major crevasse field. So, but the crevasses are all open. And I was following, so it's the middle of the night, you know, you've got your headlamp on and you're following the boot track. And one of the things you have to do is you have to traverse this crevasse field, but you're paralleling the crevasse systems because you're gaining the head wall, which is off to your left. So your the crevasse systems are running parallel to you versus perpendicular, perpendicular to you. So it's not like you're going around the crevasses. Uh, you're having you're walking between them, and so you have a crevasse on your left that's parallel to you, and you have a crevasse to your right that's parallel to you as you're trying to gain the Evans headwall. So that was, um, but I was uh, w- this. What happened to me happened like 45 minutes to an hour from camp was very, it was low down on the mountain. So probably um, maybe between, you know, 10,500 to 11,000 feet. You know, we, we hadn't gained much elevation, maybe a thousand feet. Because that was, your goal is to get to the head wall as soon as possible. Uh, so that you're going up the head wall and get out of this crevasse field. So I was... At this moment, I had, you know, was turning in to start paralleling between these two crevasse systems. I'm on the boot track, and I've got a crevasse that's probably six to eight feet to my left, and I have another big crevasse system, like maybe 10 feet to my right, and I am walking along this the boot track, and all of a sudden... It was like an earthquake hit and the sound of this big, massive crack. And I could see the crack moving towards me in a split second, realizing I'm on the wrong side of the crack. And a big ice shelf broke off and I was sliding on this big, massive piece of ice that was, I have no idea how thick it was, but I was sliding right into the crevasse below me. And I was falling, falling, falling. I, I found out later I didn't yell falling. I just screamed. But, so that was like lesson learned. My son didn't know what was happening because I just screamed. But I um, fell into the crevasse and I felt like I was falling a long ways. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm pulling in the second. I'm pulling in the 16-year-old Boy Scout. But as it turns out, he was right at the edge of the crevasse that I had turned into and was paralleling. 
and he actually did go into immediate self-arrest. Oh, incredible. Like, good thing that you guys practiced that before you left. Oh, totally. He and his dad both went into self-arrest. Um, but I fell, he was right on the lip of the, on the edge of the crevasse. So I fell the full, uh, weight, I mean the full length of the rope. And what happens, I fell onto a false shelf and was flipped the, um, my, because he went into self-arrest and stopped me. At my impact, I was flipped upside down backwards and all the um, debris from the ice shelf that broke off fell on top of me. It like kind of like knocked me out for a second, you know, but um, my head went back with such force. I'll never forget this. It went back with so much force that it actually created an air pocket around my face. But other than that, I was buried alive upside down in a crevasse on a false false shelf. Oh, wow. So do you think that you could have gone a lot farther down if you didn't land on that shelf? Correct. But I would have been out. So so a couple of things happened. You know, um, my son untied himself stupidly uh, and ran to the edge and he looked over fully expecting to see me dangling in the air. He thought this was going to be a, uh, a, you know, he knew what happened. He figured that I would be dangling in this crevasse and that I would just, you know, have to, they would, you know, set up an anchor and I would Jumar my way out. He, that's, that's what he was fully expecting to see me swinging around in the air Right, but, but instead, instead he looks down and you're completely buried and he can't see I'm buried. It. He sees my headlamp. The glow of my headlamp was all he could see. And it was um any 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 I mean he couldn't see me. He couldn't see anything else. So he knew that I was buried. Uh he didn't know how deep I was. He just saw this glow of this headlamp. Um, you know, he 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 thought I was dead. Uh, which, um, I mean, he yelled, he couldn't, you know, he, I didn't, I couldn't hear him. He couldn't hear, you know, I, and I was, you know, not yelling at that point. You know, I, 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 um, I was consumed with, okay, you know, how, how do I, how do I make sure to breathe? I'm going to pause here because I want to let you all know that Rita was basically unharmed from the impacts of this fall. She's super lucky to be alive and come out of this in the way she did. And now I'll let her tell the rest of the story. So it was, um, it was interesting because I, um, so I'm going to just talk about a lesson learned here. You know, I was wearing just a regular harness. I was not, I did not rig myself up with a chest harness and I had a pretty big pack on. So that also played into the force of me flipping backwards you know, that, that, that the yank of the second going in for self-arrest you know, and just the, 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 the karma of the, the rope coming, becoming taut and flipping me right before I landed on this, this shelf and then having all this debris fall on top of me. It was big blocks of ice. It was big blocks. It wasn't snow. It was big blocks of ice. Right. Well, I wonder if a chest harness did keep you upright and all those heavy ice blocks of ice fell on your head if you would have gotten more blows to the head and been even more injured than being flipped upside down. 
Well, and that's, yeah, that, that very well, um, you know, I, it, that very well could have happened. I hadn't even thought about that. I just know that I went back with a lot of force and, uh, just being flipped back. And so I thought about the, you know, okay, should, should, should one be wearing a chest harness when you're in that, if you're the leader, you're first, you have a big pack, um, it's certainly something that, you know, you you brought up something new that I hadn't even thought about. But um, so I was trapped. Um, my left arm was completely uh, behind my back and neck. Um, my feet, I could feel that my boots were actually in the air. So there, there was, there, there, I wasn't like I was completely 100% buried. I actually had movement in my feet. I could tell that my feet were actually kicking around, that I could actually move my, my legs a little bit and they were, um, in, in the free air. So, um, so I had, you know, but I couldn't move anything else except for my right hand. I, uh, somehow managed to get my glove off my right hand and I started to try to dig an air passage. So I knew that I had this, okay, so I wasn't like, you know, I had like maybe four feet before I could, you know, if I could dig, you know, if I could somehow manage to dig an air passage, then I would be able to continue to breathe. And that was my, that was my whole objective. My world just came down to like, okay, I got to try to figure out how to breathe. And, and, and being, and being um, completely engulfed in white light. I can't even tell you what that's like, actually. <laughs> like I felt, um, I felt a certain amount of calm. And I don't know to this day if it was, I was just like, enveloped with this white light that I just felt, okay, I'm going to take some deep breaths here. Now you have to, I'm also into um, yoga and I can tell you that I completely embraced some um, deep breathing to stay calm. So I, I, I had waves of anxiety that would overcome me. And then I realized like I couldn't, I couldn't panic. I just couldn't do it. I had to figure out how to stay calm. So staying calm and making sure you were able to breathe were your two objectives in those moments. Right. And also I knew, uh, I, one of the things that also grounded me a lot was the faith in my son. Like I knew he, I knew what he knew. I, and I knew he knew what to do. And I knew he had the equipment. I knew he had a picket. I knew he knew how to set up a crevasse rescue system. Even though we hadn't practiced it as a team the day before, I knew he knew how to do it. And so that was really important to me that, that I mean, that, that's when I talk about how, you know, just having that, that knowledge that he knew what to do, because I had, <laughs> you know, we'd been climbing together for like 13 years by this point or not more. And, and, um, and that he, uh, that, that, that he would, you know, that he knew what to do. So, um, so 
I was there for about 45 minutes, uh, is what people tell me, before I felt that somebody else was down in the crevasse with me. And, um, and that person turned out to be a climber from another group who actually, they had, they had shared the same high camp area. We had, we had been joking with them and bantering with them the day before. Oh, what time are you guys leaving? What time are you leaving? And, um, and so this group actually was 20 minutes behind us, I guess, maybe 30 minutes. And they, they, they heard, they heard the commotion, uh, and so they got to the lip of the crevasse. They saw that my son was already putting in a picket. Um, he told them that I was the person that was down in the crevasse. And they immediately also started setting up a separate anchor system. And and the one young man whose name was uh, Eli, which I always have said, well, there's never a better name for an angel to come down into a crevasse to rescue you. Uh, he had the right name. Uh, he, he was, um, he had medical training. Apparently he told my son that, you know, because my son was like, well, I'm going to go down. I'm, I, I, I'm the person that should go down to rescue my mom. And Eli said, no, listen, I've got, you know, medical training. I think he had an EMT license or something, EMT training. So he's the one that actually came down into the crevasse and started to dig me out. Um, and he could, and, and I was, you know, by that time I had actually dug my air passage and he had, uh, was able to, you know, uh, he, he yelled for a shovel at some point and, and together, you know, um, as, as he started to dig and knock snow in my face, I was like, no, 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 don't do that. Um, but he, you know, he got me out really quickly once he was down there and I just, you know, he's like, we got to get going. We got to get going. And what I didn't realize is that he was hearing sounds from the crevasse, the ice walls around us that were just creaking. And he felt that something was going to happen. Something else was going to go. And so it's like, it was, I had my Jumars out. And as it turned out, there was a third party that showed on the scene who was from North Everett. And they took over from Moriel, my son, and set up a Z-pulley system. And so I got my Jumars on that Z-pulley system and they yanked me out probably like in, in, in three minutes. I mean, I was so impressed uh, with the Z-pulley system that they had set up. And so um, I, it was amazing that I got out of there, Eli got out of there, and we were literally standing on the, uh, you know, on the edge of the crevasse probably a minute or so before the entire Moore shelf flew, um, you know, basically the crevasse collapsed in on itself. And by this point, there was like 20 people gathered around because all these parties had already started leaving the Camp Sherman. Somebody had already radioed the ranger. Um, the ranger was getting ready to, you know, they woke him up and, you know, the ranger was getting ready to come up uh, to, 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 you know, to assess and, and call a rescue. And they were able to call that off and say, no, we got the person out. She's fine. And, and I was, I was fine. I had, I had so much adrenaline though, that, um, I turned to my team and said, Hey, you want to go on? Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> They're just shaking their head. Um, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the 16 year old and his dad were like, no, I don't think so. My son was just, 
uh, beyond, I mean, the emotion of, you know, of him seeing me, you know, alive and, and not dead. He thought you were dead. I mean, he thought his own mother was dead at the end of the rope. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You, if you talk about PTSD, he had it for so long because of what he just, you know, what he experienced and just, just really honestly believing that I had died. So it, it was, it was amazing because, you know, the, the fact that Eli trusted his gut that, you know, we had to get out of there fast. There was no like farting around down at the bottom of that crevasse. Once he dug me out, it was like, we got to go, we got to get out of here. He went up his rope, uh, to his team. And, and like I said, this third party had come up and had joined forces with my son and they got the Z pulley system rigged up. And my God, that was like so amazing. And, and, and thank goodness we got out of there when we did, because I honestly think that Eli and I would have been killed um, if we had stuck around for another couple minutes. How far did you end up falling in the crevasse? Uh, it was the full length of the rope between me and my second because the second was literally on the edge of the mm-hmm. crevasse. So it was about 60 feet. And were you wearing a helmet? I was. That's, you know, what I did right, you know, was wearing a helmet because it just, it, it, it allowed me to... Uh, have that air pocket. It created that air pocket. And who knows, like I say, you know, just the impact on the false shelf. And, and if there, and I I don't know if a piece of ice had fallen on my head. I mean, I was buried. I was certainly buried alive. And, and, you know, it was these big chunks of ice that had fallen on top of me. So, and the crazy thing is, Ashley, I just started wearing my helmet earlier that year. You know, this was 2007. So if you think about when helmets were really, really gaining um, strength amongst the climbing community, uh, it was, you know, I had climbed for 20 years without a helmet. And except for rare occasions. And um, so it, it, I'm... I'm grateful that I had started wearing one. And I, you know, today it's just not even a question. I don't know if you, if you've ever had that, that amount of adrenaline course through your body. And then what happens like two to like two hours later, you just start to shake mm-hmm. and, and you have, I, I don't know, maybe you've had other people ex- describe this to you. You have uncontrollable shakes for hours. I, I, the, the amount of adrenaline uh, was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I did, I didn't know to expect that. And so when it happened, when it was happening to me, I was just like, oh my God. And then I found out later, that's what, when you have that much adrenaline go through your body um, and how your body processes it, you know, it it was just, um, it it was, it was crazy. And, and, and then I've heard so many of your episodes actually talk about the mental aspects of it and the, the post-traumatic stress. And I can't tell you how many times when I, when I hear about a story of somebody who's been caught in an avalanche, caught in a tree well, caught, you know, buried alive, regardless of what adventure or what they were doing, I just can start immediately start shaking. And so I, I feel like um, I'm hoping that, you know, I'm finally telling the story in a public venue, which is just unbelievable to me that I'm doing this, yeah, but I feel yeah. that, um, it's, it, it's helpful 
because the other, the flip side is also true is that, um, when I'm in stressful situations at work that are not life and death, let me tell you that experience in the crevasse puts everything into perspective because what happens at work is not life and death. And so I can say, wait a minute, I'm, you know, this, 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 is uh um this is this this is stressful but it's nothing like what I've been through and and I survived that and I came away a really strong person mentally um from that experience so because I you know I was able to draw on strength that I never knew I had and so there, there there's like the 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 pros and the cons or the yin and the yang of that you know so um but but I also want to say, do not assume the boot track is the safest place to be. I bet you a thousand people had walked that track that summer. If you just do the math around Mount Rainier and how many people climb Mount Rainier, that boot track was so, I mean, and I was the first person on that track that day. On that day. Yeah. 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 I am pretty convinced that if it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else. Rhea went back one year after this accident and spent an entire day practicing crevasse rescue. This would have been her eighth attempt at Rainier. And guess what? She made the summit with her brother and her son. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor and always being so stoked to shower my listeners with rad gear and gifts. Thanks to Desert Mountain Medicine. Desert Mountain Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. In accordance with various city, county, and state officials, DMM resumed in-person courses on June 1st. The health and safety of students and instructors is their top priority, and DMM will continue to adapt and innovate as they move forward in providing wilderness medicine training. To learn more about their traditional and hybrid courses and to sign up, visit DesertMountainMedicine.com. Are you ready? Juggling your passion for sports with a busy life can be hard. You want a sports watch that is ready when you are and a smart watch that handles your every day. Sunto 7 gives you the best of both worlds and it's designed to help you get the most out of your time. It's Sunto's first watch that combines its versatile sports experience and free offline outdoor maps with helpful smartwatch features from Wear OS by Google, making this watch the smartest sports watch yet. Go check it out at www.sunto.com slash Sunto 7 to learn more. And remember, play hard and be smart.